Around the year 1970, uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote two books. The first book was entitled The God Who Is There, which was more apologetic in nature. And the second, more philosophical, entitled He Is There and He Is Not Silent, which serves as the perfect title to our sermon and the outline for our sermon. He is there and he is not silent. This psalm, Psalm 19, has two distinct parts, verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 11, which convey the two ways that God communicates and reveals himself and his will to man by general revelation and by special revelation. There are two books, if you will, by which we know God, the book of nature and the book of scripture. This idea is an old idea in the church. First, it, it, uh, it shows in uh, St. Augustine's book, The Confessions, and it has permeated historic Christian thought and teaches that there are two sources of truth, two sources which complement each other and are in complete agreement. The study of natural science is in accord with the study of God, theology, the queen of the sciences. That is to say, the science and religion are completely compatible with each other, and they are not antagonistic to one another. This is the message of Psalm 19, whose theology, says Derek Kidner, and you probably hear a lot of quotes from Kidner, whose theology is as powerful as his poetry. Psalm 19 enjoins us to see God in all of his works, or should I say, to hear God in all of his works, both of general revelation and special revelation. The earth and everything in it is God's gift to us. And if that weren't enough, God gives us himself in the giving of his law. But as we have learned in our study of Galatians, and as Paul said to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, we know that the law is good if it is used lawfully. And the play on words that you hear in English reflects the play on words in the original Greek of the New Testament. And if one does not use it lawfully, that is correctly, according to the purpose for which it was designed and given, then a person will never be saved. But rather will always be confined to a life of both deep doubt within Did I do enough? Did I try hard enough? Did I have enough virtue and display enough love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness uh, and self-control? Deep doubt within. And tempted to see the Christian life as one of scorekeeping, as we were taught last Lord's Day, where one would say, well, I know I'm not perfect, No one is, but at least I'm not like him or him or him, which is exactly the heart expressed of the Pharisee with regard to the penitent publican tax collector. What we need to know and what we need to see and what we need to remind ourselves each and every day is that the law is given by God who is good because it drives us to Christ. Scorekeeping. You know, the thing about scorekeeping 
if you're keeping anyone else's score, you might be objective about it. You know, like the Padres beat the Dodgers. I suspect you knew that would be in there. But if you're keeping your own score, you will always rationalize what you did and didn't do. And you'll be tempted to fudge when you're keeping your own score. You know, like the golfer who would say, well, yeah, I know it was a bogey, but that last putt, it rimmed the cup and it should have gone in. So I'm going to put myself down for a par. And you will end up justifying your entire life. And your life's choices. And you will find at the end of that life that that is a dead end and it leads only to emptiness. Again, because of deep doubt within. You'll end up like the guy in the words of the song about whom it is said, you will swear and kick and beg us that you are not a gambling man. And then you'll find you're back in Vegas with a handle in your hand. The fact of the matter is, as we have learned, by works of the law, no one will be justified before a holy God. Because, from Galatians, if righteousness were through the law, if that were the case, then Christ died for no purpose. We heard last Sunday, in order for grace to prevail, in order for grace to triumph, the law must die. Which is why Paul says, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I do live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The law shows us the way of gratitude. Gratitude for the fact that he already saved us. You remember going back to Exodus chapter 20 at the very beginning of the salvation of the people of God where the, God, where the Lord God gathers them and says to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the house of slavery. There you have it, redemption accomplished. I've done it, and that is who I am. And then redemption applied through the law of the Ten Commandments. The law is not a way by which we earn God's favor out of personal obedience. It never was, it's not, and it never will be. But a way by which we can show our gratitude for all that he is to us and all that he has done for us. Our psalm, Psalm 19, breaks down nicely not only into two parts, he is there and he is not silent, but actually to three parts. Part one, the heavens speak. Part two, the scriptures speak. And then part three, a conclusion. The servant listens and responds in faith. So let's look at the first of these, the heavens speak. They declare the glory of God and to all mankind. Constantly. Steadily. The creation speaks of its creator. It testifies by saying, look at me. Look at my beauty. Look at my splendor. Look at my grandeur. Look at my magnificence. Look at my majesty. Look at my simple unity and yet complex diversity. Look at me and give glory to the one who made me. Do say in your heart, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you have ordained, ordained set in place, I say, what is man? Man 
that you're mindful of him. And do not say in your heart, all of this came from nothing and all by itself. That's nonsense. That's absurd. Billy Preston taught us through song, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. And we would say, from nothing, nothing comes. Or the Latin that your children are learning, ex nihilo, nihil, fit. From nothing, nothing comes. Day after day, night after night, the heavens declare, they proclaim, they shout. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. This is a heavenly testimony, friends. Now, granted, the psalmist employs the paradox of wordless speech. But you will notice, won't you, that he doesn't really qualify it. He doesn't amend it. He doesn't forgive, uh, ask forgiveness for speaking that way. Rather, he doubles down. In verse 2, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. And the voice of the heavens goes out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. Which is to say that we are to conclude that we are bombarded constantly with the declaration of the glory of God. Day after day. We are constantly saturated with the knowledge of his handiwork night to night. Kidner again says knowledge is well matched with the night. Since without the night skies man would have known nothing but an empty universe. That's not the way the Lord reveals it. As the sun traces his course across the sky, and if you're up early enough, you see this gorgeous, magnificent sunrise with all of its hues. And then you don't look at it during the day, but as it's setting just before it is to dip below the horizon, and you have one of those Southern California picture-perfect sunsets. It is as if the sun is saying, but wait, there's more. As soon as I set Genesis tells us that the God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. Now the skeptic would say, I don't hear anything. To the skeptic who would say that, I would say this, of course you don't hear anything, because you're deaf. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The unbeliever is filled with wonder. But he wonders what to do with the wonder that he feels because he will not praise God. Only the Christian is filled with, again, what Kidner calls filial wonder and joy at the thought of God's creation. You see, you see this and your thoughts, your hearts, your, 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 your eyes are immediately lifted to the unseen God. When the believer says, wow, He's coming at it from a different uh, angle than when the unbeliever says, wow. Because the believer knows what to do with the wonder and the grandeur and the majesty of what he is seeing with his eyes. And he says, this is my father's world. It is a filial, a child to his parent, a a son or a daughter uh, to their father. It is a filial wonder and joy. In my father's world and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, 
skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. We'll be singing that in a bit. And it ends with these words. Although the wrong seems aught so strong, this is my father's world. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven will be one. So for the Christian, this very truth is plain to see, and for the non-Christian as well, at least in part. But the unbeliever takes this obvious truth and suppresses it in righteous, unrighteousness, the, the words of the Apostle Paul. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, God has shown it to them, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. They've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Therefore, he is without excuse. Westminster Confession of Faith, perhaps the greatest Christian confession ever written by and given unto the church. Entitles chapter one, the very first uh, chapter one of the Holy Scriptures. The very first sentence says this: Although the light of nature and works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness and the wisdom and the power of God, so as to leave men without excuse, and yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary for salvation. In other words, God's general revelation is sufficient to leave the unbeliever without excuse in the day of judgment. But it is not sufficient to save. And it is God's purpose to save his people. You remember. Joseph, don't, don't fear to take Mary to be your wife. For what is carried within her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you will name his name, Jesus, because he will save his people. God saves his people. The confession continues. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to commit the same holy unto writing, which make the scriptures most necessary. The unbeliever sees the glory. He hears the word of the gospel, but he does not surrender his life in faith, which is really nothing new, even Israel in the Old Testament, this is the Lord's, this is the Lord's um, complaint against them in Isaiah 42. He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. But for those who hear the word of God and receive it with joy, God grants to them eternal life, which is why we just now sang, he speaks and listening to his voice, new life, the dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. Hear him, ye deaf. Praise him, ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come and leap ye lame for joy. Yes, the heavens, the daytime sky, the nighttime sky, their voice goes out through all the earth. And then, verse 4, here comes the sun. The sun dominates the scene even as it does our sky. It is magnificent. It is blindingly bright, scorchingly hot. And yet, it is subservient 
to him who made it. The sun is the center of our solar system. It is the centerpiece of God's creation. It is not the masterpiece of God's creation. That is the earth and everything in it. But it is the centerpiece sustaining all life. But make no mistake, Christians do not worship the sun. And Christians do not worship the earth, nor the moon, nor the stars in the heavens above, or anything in the earth beneath, or anything in the waters under the earth. Rather, Christians recognize that all creation is his handiwork, his masterpiece, and he alone is the master worthy of our praise. The psalmist here personifies the sun, but he does not deify the sun. The sun is God's obedient servant, and the sky is his tent, which God pitched for him. He likens the sun to a bridegroom on his wedding day, when dressed for the big event, he sets out for the house of the bride to claim her. Such is the radiance, one commentator says. Such is the radiance and the festive mood of the journey from east to west. And just as nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, so too, when our minds go immediately to the special revelation of him from whom nothing is hidden at all. General revelation gives way to special revelation from the skies to the scriptures. Hebrews 4 says it this way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And then, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must Give account. Brings us to the second point, verses 7 through 11. The scriptures speak. Now this is kind of marked, it's reflected in your English Bibles by the fact that God is referenced one time in the first six verses. And it uses the term El. El, uh, which is the generic term for God as sovereign creator. But in verses 7 to 11, the scriptures speak. We find the word Yahweh seven times which is that particular name of God, the special name of God, the Lord given to his people. Uh, it is his unique covenant name, which reflects the covenant commitment to his people. And because the giver is perfect, the law is perfect. Now we're going to look at these, but somewhat quickly. There's no need to go through them individually one by one. And that, for a couple of reasons... For one, um, these are all just uh, kind of re uh, repetitious synonyms for the law of the Lord. The word law, the, the Torah can, can refer to the entirety of Scripture from the very beginning, uh, the, where the Lord God made heavens and the earth to the very end, the words of him who says, surely I am coming soon. And his church says, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the judgments are different ways of saying the same thing. Now, we should know and realize that these are all picked up from the five books of Moses. They are all different ways to refer to God's law in the Pentateuch. Uh, but we don't need to go through them uh, one by one. What we learn from this is that there is great reward from the word of God, the law of God. What are some of those rewards? Well, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever. 
and altogether his judgments are righteous and true. Therefore, no wonder why the psalmist says they're to be desired more than gold. Yes, much more than much fine gold. So we're considering first the intent and the design of the law. Now we're going to think about that law for a few minutes here this morning. To illustrate this, I want you to consider for a moment just how perfect life would be if everyone would follow instinctively and gratefully and from the heart God's law, the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at the second table of the law, the commandments 5 through 10, which are those commandments that deal with man's duty to man, summarized in the word of our Lord, uh, who says, And the second is like unto the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to imagine a world where the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. There would be no stress inside the home over things like eating your vegetables or going to bed. No tension when children are little. No heartache when children are older. When dad says, brush your teeth and go to bed, it would be answered by, sure thing, dad, and thanks so much for a wonderful day. I told you, you're going to have to use your imagination. (laughs) Children would be able to depend on their parents in their youth, and parents would be able to depend on their children in their old age. The sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder. Imagine. That is unimaginable. The unjust taking of another man's life. It's not even thinkable. Homicide, the homicide division in the police department would go out of business, not because they've been defunded, but because they've been decommissioned because there's nothing to do. Mass shooting? Unthinkable. The school's on lockdown? What is lockdown? Mass murder at a Walmart or the mall or the elementary school? Unimaginable. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We would say to each other in the bonds of marriage, we can show our love for each other by waiting until our wedding night. And after we are married, I will keep myself for you alone in my thoughts and in my words. There will be no harmless flirting at the office because there's no such thing as harmless flirting. And in my actions, especially when I'm on the computer and no one else is looking. Men have no need to look up women they don't know. And women have no desire to look up the men that they used to know. Me too becomes me neither. The men I know have always treated, only treated me with respect. And our daughters don't feel any need to make themselves internet sexy with seductive selfies using online filters. The sex industry from pornography in any form, to escort services, to gentlemen's clubs, to the human slavery of sex trafficking, which, by the way, is the greatest social injustice and it is replete with racism. You long for social justice? Join the club. Join the church. Come to Christ. But all of it would just disappear if You could take your children to the grocery store without feeling like you have to shield their eyes from the magazines at the checkout counter. Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Car keys. Why would we need car keys? 
cars don't have door locks, and our car starts at the push of, nowadays the car does start at the push of a button. Steal a catalytic converter, a stereo system, cut the gas line to steal the gasoline? Who would ever do that? We don't even have locks on our doors to our homes, no bars on the windows, no alarm systems, no paid security, no safe behind the picture on the master bedroom wall. Why? No one steals. God said not to. And people love the law of the Lord our God. They hear it and they hate it. We have no locks here. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, the last in the 10th commandment. I want to tell the truth about my neighbor, and I want to tell the truth with and to my neighbor. And whether or not it is true, I really won't gossip about him to anyone. And I don't want to hear gossip either. I want to protect my neighbor's good name. And as for bringing a fraudulent lawsuit against my neighbor, again, who would do such a thing? It's not true. I wouldn't like if he did that to me. And I'm not going to do it to him. I'm sorry, the tenth. That was the uh, tenth. Thou shalt not covet. That's yours. It's not mine. And I am so happy that you were able to have it. I'm happy with what I have. I don't covet what you have because that would lead to stealing and to lying and to adultery and even murder. Nope. I'm perfectly content with what the Lord has given me. And I rejoice with what the Lord has given to you. Now, the point of this illustration is not to make us long for the days of Andy of Mayberry or to a time where a father, who knows best, meets his next-door neighbors, the cleavers, each house with a white picket fence. Rather, the point of this illustration is to remind us just how good the law is and how good it would be if we could keep the law of God perfectly and completely, instinctively and gratefully, and from the heart. But we can't. Because the law did require perfect personal obedience, and because, as we teach you children both here in church and at home, can any mere man keep the law of God perfectly? No. No mere man since the fall of Adam ever has or can keep the law of God perfectly. Therefore, man must have a redeemer, a substitute, who is not only truly man, fully man, but truly God and fully God. And we do. And his name is Jesus. He has kept the law perfectly and personally in every way at every time and occasion, in thought and in word and in deed. And in doing that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ and look to him grateful for the graciousness of his salvation because he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's frame. So our conclusion this morning, verses 12 to 14, the psalmist reacts in wonder, awe, and faith. Let's read it. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The psalmist concludes this masterpiece with serious personal reflection and introspection. Well, yeah, 
He's just been looking closely into the mirror of God's law. He's drunk deeply from the fountain, the holy law of a holy God. Of course he is introspective. That's why we confess our sins and receive anew the assurance of his pardon and forgiveness every Lord's Day when we get together. David wrote, and we read, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Yes, the law given by God promises blessings as well as gives warnings. Again, Kidner, the two-edged sword has penetrated. The servant is cut to the quick, but the incision is not in order to kill, but to heal. The scalpel is used by the loving hand of a master surgeon. David speaks of hidden faults and presumptuous sins. And together they refer to sins of which you are not even aware, or at least not yet. Hidden faults. Verse 12 is rhetorical. Who can discern his errors? The psalmist is not expecting some upstart to raise his hand in the back row and say, oh, that would be me. But rather, as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In the words of Alec Matyar, a fault may be hidden, not because it's too small to see, but it is way too typical to register. We say, well, that's just the way I am, perhaps. But God loves you so much, way too much, to let you to continue to be that way. Looking deeply into the law, David cries out for justification. Declare me innocent. That's what justification is. It's a declaration of innocent, not guilty on the part of a holy God. We read in our catechism that justification is an act of God's free grace whereby, a, whereby, whereby God forgives us or pardons us of all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Jesus was granted, imputed into us and received by faith alone. God's free pardon. And keep me from presumptuous sins. You know the thing about presumptuous sins, friends? They're arrogant. And if they go unchecked, they will come to have dominion over me, over us, and they will enslave you. But, hear this, the God who justifies is the God who sanctifies. Sanctification, the work of God's free grace, whereby we are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. In the words of Edmund Clowney, which I wrote down in class, the just as I am I come to thee becomes all that I am I give to thee. But when examining your heart, always remember this, it is thy servant who is warned in this passage. The servant belongs to the Lord by the covenant which the law itself presupposes. So David ends with the words that we often use to begin our sermons. And the, and the Lord's servant David says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer. Notice he doesn't say, because you are my judge and I live in abject fear. 
He says, you are my rock and my redeemer. May my words be your words, my thoughts, your thoughts, my ways, your ways. Little by little, more and more. And David says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So we close with the words found later in the New Testament, which say, and now, unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence, blameless and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority now and forever. Amen. Join me in prayer.